on Oscar Bonavena's part, he doesn't really come off like a hero or a great guy. But that's also kind of just life, you know. I mean, um, the reality of 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 life is that perhaps there aren't really heroes. Like good people do bad things and bad people do good things, and it's more complex than just somebody being bad or good. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tourist Information. My guest this week is my good friend, Patrick Connor, who is now a first-time author with his book, Shot at a Brothel, The Spectacular Demise of Oscar Ringo Bonavena, published by Hamill Carr Noir. I do absolutely recommend you pick it up. Oscar Bonavena, I guess, is most compelling to me as the only person who I think upstaged Muhammad Ali at a press conference. He got punished for it, too, when they finally fought. And Bonavena's death is just one of those incredible aspects of his biography and in the biography of any fighters in the annals of boxing history. And Patrick writes about it uh, really compellingly. He's a wonderful boxing historian, and uh, it's a page-turner, and yet there's depth to it. At the same time, the pathos of this bizarre Argentine journeyman with Italian blood um, after he died and was sent back to Argentina, uh, well over 100,000 of his countrymen came out to visit his body and pay their respects. It's just strange from beginning to end and yet very, very compelling. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Patrick Connor talking about this great book, Shot at a Brothel, good title. This week's guest on Tourist Information. All right, Patrick Connor, finally you come on my podcast after years of being on yours. And we are going to talk about your first book, Shot at a Brothel, The Spectacular Demise of Oscar Ringo Bonavena, published by Hamilcar Noir. And uh, I kind of love Oscar Bonavena. I mean, I loved him even before I read your book. But what drew you to this fascinating character? with his brief 33 years on the planet. <laughs> well, first of all, it's thank you so much for having me on for a change. It's definitely kind of like it's flipping the script and it's weird, man. It's weirding me out. Now, uh, it's thank you. But as for the book, as for Oscar Bonavena, um, it's weird because as a kind of history type of guy, somebody who's really into history and boxing history, um, I nonetheless knew about what about the same is what anybody else knows or thinks they know about Oscar Bonavena. Um, I kind of knew the basic story going in. Um, I, I knew that he was shot at a brothel. <laughs> that kind of is the title says a great title, by the way, Gotta, can't take credit for it. But in any case, as I went along, um, it was funny because just before being asked to write the book, um, I had already done research about Oscar Bonavena's death very like days before or something like that, because I believe it was the anniversary of Ali Bonavena, which is in early December. And I spoke to them in like mid December or something. And I was curious and I looked up his story and was like, what, you know, what happened here? 
went back and started doing research, downloaded a whole bunch of new newspaper articles and read through them and got a much better idea, you know, much better picture of what happened, obviously. And so as I went along and started researching kind of more about Bonavena, it was when I was asked to write the book and it was totally kind of coincidental. Um, they asked not to write, they at Hamilcar did not ask me to write about Bonavena. They just asked if I had any ideas. And when I brought up Bonavena, they were very intrigued by that, that idea. And it just kind of worked out serendipitously that way. But as I researched Oscar Bonavena's life and career, I realized I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. I started finding out a lot more about him and about kind of what led to his death. And I guess just because of the difficulty I was having writing the book and getting started, and I guess the period of my life or something, I don't know, um, in some ways, in some really, I guess, strange, perhaps sick way, I started almost feeling as though I could relate to him. And not in the sense of, if you read the book, some of the things that he did or was involved in, because I've never been involved in any of those things and have never done some uh, terrible things that, you know, were the just icky things that he did. But um, in the sense that he was constantly getting in his own way, in the sense that he was kind of his own his own worst enemy. And I think a lot of people can relate to that in a lot of ways, in a, in ways that are far less dark and poetic and stuff. But I could. And so I started almost feeling as though I could see things from his perspective a little bit. Um, and so that intrigued me more and really felt as though that made me more connected to this book and story than I perhaps otherwise would have been. Well, so with Bonavena, why don't we start out for people that are a little unacquainted with this guy who died in 1976. Um, he's of Italian descent, born in Buenos Aires. And why don't you walk us through a little bit his journey into the beginning of his boxing career in New York City, where he's managed by a World War II hero and dentist, <laughs> Marvin Goldberg. It's really, it's funny because his upbringing, Oscar Bonavena's upbringing, mirrors that of a number of fighters in that he came from poverty. He came from a very uh, destitute and difficult situation in Buenos Aires. And in this particular part of Argentina, obviously the, the most densely populated part of Argentina, um, it, it this area, and Unfortunately, some of this, uh, a lot of stuff got cut from the book, obviously. It's a fairly short book, and anybody who's familiar with the way I write is like, I don't really write short. But um, through the grace of uh, you know, a lot of patience, understanding, and great editing, we got it down. And some of the stuff that I left out that I was nonetheless very intrigued by was some of the history behind these places uh that oscar bonavena came from of uh, these particular parts of um buenos aires and there was just these kind of these ties to all of these slaughterhouses that were constantly around buenos aires in the times immediately le leading up to his birth and also i mean it was it's just a very strange setting you know it's uh very urban and Anyway, that part of that part of it to me was also very intriguing. And so in the boxing sense, uh, 
um, Luna Park, Estadio Luna Park, was a place that opened in Buenos Aires, and they needed a closed, an, an enclosed indoor venue for boxing and for other sports, because they wound up having some fights rescheduled and canceled because of bad weather, and then they erected this stadium, which became a boxing mecca in South America, basically uh, the Madison Square Garden of Argentina, I guess. And so uh, this particular place um, grew to have connections with boxing people in New York. And as that happened, there was kind of like a two-way funnel. Some fighters like Archie Moore, for instance, had fought down in Buenos Aires and uh, some of the managerial people he was involved with brought some fighters from Argentina to fight in the U.S. and so forth. And so there was already kind of like direct communication, ties, a pipeline, whatever. And so anyway, in this place that Oscar, Bana, Oscar Bonavena grew up, he managed to find his way into a boxing gym through having trouble and uh, in the neighborhood and being encouraged to learn how to fight. And then I think that it suited his personality very well because he was very peculiar in the first place and very kind of outwardly confident in a way that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So fights happened. And so when he learned how to fight and he was a very large teenager, um, I think that it just kind of all came together for him. And finally he wound up uh, being somewhat reined in because he was a, a wild dude he being he wanted being somewhat reined in by a pair of brothers in Buenos Aires, and that's kind of where the story started and how he wound up finding his way to, uh, you know, a path to go to the U.S. But unfortunately, as an amateur, he got into a little bit of trouble that got him suspended, and that jump started his professional career because he got suspended and couldn't fight as an amateur anymore. I mean, I think I first encountered him in watching some Ali documentary, and he was the only person that I've ever seen upstage Ali at a press conference. <laughs> I, I just I can't imagine anybody else coming close, but he was so derogatory. I think he called Ali a black kangaroo and a chicken about dodging the draft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beep, beep, um, beep, 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 beep. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he, he had insinuated a hygiene problem with Joe Frazier that was yeah pretty offensive. But I mean, he was a very, very colorful, uh, volatile character. And I wonder, like, when did you first encounter him? Kind of just with your love of boxing. It's funny you say that because I think I probably... It might have even been the same documentary, but there was, I believe, an HBO documentary on Ali that was like four hours long several years ago, many years ago, maybe a couple decades ago, that I it was one of the first DVDs I ever got. Like uh, DVD players had come out in like the late 90s, but they weren't super uh, widespread yet. And so finally, uh, when I had gotten a DVD player, because I'm, I'm always late to get like some technology, dude. Like I'm, I, while I understand him and am cool with technology, I'm not 
kind to jump and get the latest gadget or whatever, or the latest version of a gadget, like a lot of people. Nothing against them. I just don't. But I'm late to the party, and I was late to the party getting a DVD player, but my first one of my first DVDs was this Ali documentary. And on that documentary, I can't remember if they had the full Bonavena fight or just a large chunk of it, but they had some of it. However, they showed the press conference, and they were showing him getting or at least what appeared to be clearly getting under Ollie's skin. And so, so much time was always spent with the first list and fight and the second list and fight, how calm Ollie was. He was all getting up in Liston's face and jumping all around. And then they took his blood pressure and it was like fucking basement level, you know? And it's, it's so to see him get rankled was definitely kind of like a sight to see. And then, um, I guess the kind of recognizing him among the players of that heavyweight division, which has always been celebrated. Well, I guess two overlapping eras, the sixties and seventies always celebrated as if not the best boxing eras for the heavyweights, then, you know, among the couple best eras and he was among the players and, you know, losing to Joe Frazier, losing to Muhammad Ali, those kinds of things, there's no shame in it. So, often he was talked about among the contenders that were like today's heavyweights are so shitty, you know, even the contenders from the sixties and seventies would mess him up. And so that's kind of how I, I always knew him. I didn't know his story. I just knew that he was among that group. And so being just even among that group is kind of like coveted hallowed and um, because of that storied. And so he, yeah, very much just kind of, mythologized or whatever I, I don't know what the word would be but yeah just just kind of an urban legend so yeah that's that's what i knew of him i didn't really know that much more of than your average boxing fan it is an interesting era isn't it because i mean you have the a team of the 1970s great heavyweights but the b team seems like it would be far and away an a team now and then the journeymen still yeah. like they would be threats to the people that are A-team people now. It's such yeah. a deep, rich era for heavyweights. And it's funny because Oscar Bonavena, um, he was not particularly skilled himself, but even so, um, and you and I have talked about this on other occasions, that inside fighting kind of being awkward is in, it, in and of itself a skill in some ways. And so um, I could see Oscar Bonavena, despite his lack of skill, probably competing okay in a, in a heavyweight division like today. Um, a lot of it's stylistic, but also points to an overall like erosion of skills and things that are taught in the gym where you don't see a lot of heavyweights in today's era and in recent eras that are good at fighting inside. And I don't mean like tying up and occasionally giving some half-assed uppercut, but like actually fighting inside. You, you don't see that very often. How do you think he would have done against Bobby Chez? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, well, I think Chappie might have uh, taken a nappy. <laughs> I, think, I think maybe Bobby Chez should be your next biography. It's time. That would be a that would be a, a sobering book indeed. 
No, okay. I was just teasing you. But I mean, okay, so I'm going through his resume. It seems to me that arguably George Chevallo would be his biggest victory. Am I on sound footing saying that? That who would be his biggest victory? George Chevallo. You know, I think that probably in terms of uh, beating an opponent that was uh, like the quality. Yeah, most likely. Um, probably his most celebrated victory would be uh, Gregorio Peralta. Okay. Um, and because he is so popular, even still in Argentina, and because of the circumstances surrounding that fight, that it was kind of like something of a coming out party for him that broke attendance records, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so it was a big deal in Argentina. There was a, it was a big to do in the press leading up to the fight. And so that might be considered, a, a, if you were to ask somebody from Argentina, if what would be his biggest victory, that would probably be considered his biggest victory. But even so, <laughs> his biggest moments would be for sure taking Ali into late in the fight and pushing him hard and knocking down Joe Frazier. Hmm. And talk about the fight with Ali. Why don't you paint that picture for us in December 1970 at MSG? Because it, it was a pretty incredible fight. Like, I mean, Ali was pissed. And there was some controversy even with when he would knock Bonavena down, like just not going to a neutral corner and gaining an advantage by just being able to whack him right away. <laughs> And I think that that's, it's almost like Tom Brady now. Well, Tom Brady in recent years, um, getting favorable calls in the NFL. Yeah. Not super into football, but I'm, I'm aware enough to know that that's, that that's what happens. Or perhaps LeBron getting favorable calls or something. Um, similar to that, Muhammad Ali was probably going to get away with a lot of stuff that other fighters were not going to be allowed to get away with. Like, uh, for instance, and I mean, I'm I'm just being honest. I have nothing against Muhammad Ali. He's as much a hero to me uh, as nearly anyone. But as from an aesthetic point of view, similar to Jack Johnson, fucking awful to watch sometimes. Just terrible. He got away with a ton of holding, ton of rabbit punching, like a laughable amount of rabbit punching sometimes. Um, you know, pushing off, um, doing the thing with his jab where he would measure with an open glove. He did that all the time, and that's illegal. You can't do that. All sorts of things he would get away with, and the, the Bonavena fight was no exception. Um, he was less able to get away with it earlier in the fight because Oscar Bonavena was a very awkward guy. As I said a minute ago, he's, he's not very skilled. He was not somebody who was classically skilled in that regard. But he was very physical, and he was the kind of fighter who would, like, uh, jab his way in and, like, grab you and then just, like, rough you up. <laughs> you know, he, he might not land a ton clean, but he was just going to rough rough you up, dude. But then out of nowhere, he'd land, like, a clean-ass hook, and you'd be like, holy shit, where did that come from? And that was almost, like, that was why he was effective. Because you just didn't know what was coming from what angle and what he was going to do. He might forearm you. He might like headbutt. He might do something. He was crazy. 
but that was kind of part of the uh, part of his in-ring charm. And so uh, outside of the ring, as you said, he he annoyed Ali, he pissed him off. Um, when Muhammad Ali was uh, in, I believe it was Houston, in front of the draft board, uh, and was denied an exemption, basically, and was had his uh, his license taken away so that he couldn't fight in 1967. Um, First of all, he was already an extremely popular character. He's a heavyweight champion, obviously, but beyond that, he was an extremely popular uh, um, pop culture character. And so there were a lot of fighters who would try to mimic him. A lot of fighters would also call him out, similar to today. Um, a lot of people calling out Terrence Crawford or Errol Spence or Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury because they're the money makers, and it's the exact same situation. And Oscar Bonavena was no exception, and he had he had started talking about Ali years before their fight, uh, especially to interviewers in Argentina, where there was a much bigger kind of tabloid um, environment as far as uh, fights and local fighters and stuff like that. Like similar to Ali in the United States, Oscar Bonavena would be followed around on the street and stuff like that in Argentina. So he had started calling out. Muhammad Ali because he knew the money in it. Um, he had started adopting the Ringo moniker because he knew that associating himself with the Beatles was going to potentially bring fame and stuff like that. They started calling him the Ringo of the Ring or the Boxing Beatle and stuff like that. Um, and so anyway, he had wanted this fight just like any other fighter had wanted that fight because it was a big payday. And so in any case, uh, the path was still open even after Muhammad Ali had been stripped of his title, because when he came back, he needed a fighter that seemed not that dangerous and that he could handle. And I think that he just bit off a little bit more than he could chew in the ring with Oscar Bonavanna because of that wild style. And because um, Ali often had difficulty with that kind of style. So, uh, and again, going back to the outside the ring thing, if you go to YouTube, there's a few different segments where you could kind of piece together what happened at their weigh-in, but he does start calling Muhammad Ali chicken and saying, how, how come you didn't go? How come you didn't go to Vietnam? How come you didn't go to the army? You know, stuff like that. And then starts making some racial remarks. Yeah. And then after that, right as they're about to get up and separate, uh, Muhammad Ali starts shadow boxing in his face and starts going, you know, jabbing him and stuff like that. And then finally he gets forward and, uh, he, I can't remember what he does. He like hits, uh, Bonavena reaches out his arm, like to say like, no, or to shake his finger at him. And he hits Bonavena's hand. And it was like a, a switch flipped in Bonavena. And you could see his face get like bright red. And like, it was almost like as if that was the threshold that Muhammad Ali crossed the threshold by touching him. And so then all of a sudden he faints, like he's going to hit Muhammad Ali who flinches and all of a sudden, like 30 Argentine reporters uproar in laughter. And it was almost like they got him, you know, they got the better of him right there for sure. And I, th I thought that was such an interesting moment to this dynamic between him and Ali, which was obviously the biggest moment in his career. So anyway, it's a bit of a rambling story, I know, but I, I found it very intriguing that he was able to get to Ali that way ahead of the fight and then on top of that really give him a tough fight before uh as you said he he knocks him down 
and the referee's trying to like send him to a neutral corner and he's smacking the referee away like get out of my way dude get out of here you're not even here who are you and he didn't even care and so he just went right after him and knocked him down like pretty much as soon as he got up you know jack dempsey style and <laughs> yeah it that was that kind of sparked a bit of a change in bonavanna's career there well and so six years later looks like he has about a dozen more fights loses to floyd patterson ron lyle then wins his last seven fights the last opponent being billy joiner in 76 in february and that takes us he's back in the united states in reno nevada um can you walk me through the time between that last fight of his career with joiner to may 22nd 1976 at this mustang ranch where he gets shot like i mean what did you how did you just decide to paint this scene the way you did? And what was it like researching this bizarre death of Bonavena? You know, Joe Conforte, the guy who owned Mustang Ranch, he figured so much into the story and he was really the key. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he owned the place. It's so, I mean, that's kind of a self-explanatory statement, but to expand on that, when I started writing the book, um, I'm not. It wasn't that I started writing a Bonavena biography, but that's kind of how it read. Um, much of it, like I said earlier, was because I felt as though, on some level, I could relate uh, to some things, but also because I was learning so much. I, excuse me, I didn't know. I didn't know that much about Oscar Bonavena. Pers- on a personal level or or much about his life or the details surrounding a lot of these fights and as i learned the way that i write and it's it's definitely sometimes is a weakness of mine um when i write about history is that i, I want to tell everybody everything like every little detail that i find out and that i find so fascinating i want you to know that too because that was great i love that shit and I want you to love it too, but not everybody does. Not everybody wants those kind of like that kind of detail. It it gets long and boring, and not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And so, um, as the book went on, I started realizing that as I was going, the length was it was no good. Like I was going to have to cut stuff out. I, I couldn't do it like that. I couldn't make it like biographical or as biographical as I I was making it or focus as much on the boxing as I wanted to because Joe Conforte was really the key in this the stuff that he was getting into was really the key and so when I had kind of I kind of had to go back and get a second look at a lot of the articles and when I did that I kind of re-researched and found more stuff about Joe Conforte as I did that I found more connections and I'm not going to go through them because you got to read the book to, to you know get the connections but i just found more connections and more things that would have connected even on kind of like a six degrees of separation level between conforte and bonavena than i would have thought there were more things that were connecting conforte and boxing before he'd ever met oscar bonavena than i thought and there were more reasons that oscar bonavena would have gotten into trouble than I had thought. And so it just, as I kind of went along, I understood more and more 
kind of where it was going. And in, in any case, it was strange because I already knew the ending of the story. So having to reverse engineer a story this way was very difficult for me um, in like a narrative way. I did not have an easy time uh, in that regard. I, I had a very difficult time figuring out how to tell the story and how to make it interesting. Um, but I, like I said, Joe Conforte was really the key. And the stuff that he was getting into was so sordid and gnarly and weird and just crazy that the more you find out, it's almost like this ending was inevitable. There was no other way this could have ended. So in this period of his career, after the Ali fight, Oscar Bonavena, during all of these fights, is like he has as many fights scheduled and canceled as he has actual fights um, because of these botched connections earlier in his career. He was an expert at getting in his own way. He was an expert at messing these business deals up and managerial deals. And um, he just could not help himself. And so by this time in his, the latter stage of his career, enough people knew about his, his history, his business history, that a lot of people didn't want to deal with him. And a number of fights fell through because of injuries or because of visa issues or because he couldn't get out of Argentina, et cetera. So this was a very tumultuous period in his career where it was he was very up and down. And it was like you didn't know really what to expect from him if he was going to even show up. And so as uh, at this stage in his career, right around 19, early 1976, his uh, contract is bought out in Reno by Joe Conforte, the owner of this brothel. And presumably the intention was to have his wife, Sally Conforte, manage Oscar Bonavena's career. Why? Who really knows? Perhaps that's just was something she'd always wanted to do, you know, or when people have a lot of money, they get to do crazy shit like that on a whim, you know? So perhaps that was the thing. I don't know. But regardless, he goes to Reno and that's where his contract is bought out. Uh, he winds up having a lot of fun in Reno, loving it, professing that he never wants to leave. And essentially, um, he gets this last fight against Billy Joyner. This guy is very inactive, has not won since I think the 1960s, and is a journeyman in the first place, but gives Oscar Bonavena like all he can handle. Oscar Bonavena looks bad. You know, he's, he looks, uh, he's got a mustache, he's got his signature shaggy hair, but looks out of shape, looks very rusty. The sparring there is not very good. And he just, I guess, falls in love with the party in Reno. Um, there's a lot of details between his fight with Billy Joyner and four months later when he winds up dead. Um, basically, so many of the things that Joe Conforte has his hand into has made him in an influential person around Reno, Nevada, in a number of different ways. And because of all of these ties, a lot of the story gets very complicated and there are so many strings. And so I guess that's kind of what you're left to figure out is I, I lay the groundwork in the, in the book. Like I, I tell you about as much as anybody knows 
without relying on very unreliable inter- interviews as far as what exactly happened between the Billy Joyner fight and the you know the significant things that happened between the Billy Joyner fight and Oscar Bonavena's death. But um, it's just that when you start getting into business with these kinds of people and you start involving yourself in this kind of criminal activity, it's almost as if like all bets are off. Like any anything goes from that point on. They'd found bodies around Mustang Ranch before Oscar Bonavena, and they I wouldn't I haven't looked, but they probably have since. Wouldn't be surprised. So it becomes almost like this very strange setting in the hills. It's just this little group of trailers that he that he died out front of. So it it becomes a very strange mystery, and that's I guess a big part of the book. Hmm. Um, my last question is when Bonavena was killed, his body was returned to Argentina to lie in state in Buenos Aires, uh, in, in the Lunar Park sports arena and 150,000 people came by to visit his body before he was buried, um, at the La Chacarita cemetery. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he had such resonance with the people of Argentina? That's a really good question. You know, um, it's like you, you hear things that like people love a great success story, or then you also hear people love to tear somebody down when they've been successful. And it's like, well, which one's true? I, I don't know. I guess both could be true. Um, and how that relates to Oscar Bonavena is like, as you learn in the book, he was into a lot of icky stuff. I mean, and I don't, and I don't mean like Joe Conforte necessarily, but in the sense that he had, he just burned a lot of a lot of bridges, a lot of bridges, and he burned them in a way that was pretty embarrassing. Like it, it was not. Uh, he had a lot of splits from different people, trainers, managers, uh, etc., promoters that were not amicable. A lot of them didn't really want to deal with him. And and some of them, despite not wanting to deal with him again, he somehow managed to charm them into doing it. And so I think that that's a a real big key to at least trying to understand how he could become a cult figure. Um, He doesn't seem like after, especially reading the book, but also realizing how much of it, how much of the icky stuff I left out on Oscar Bonavena's part, he doesn't really come off like a hero or a great guy, but that's also kind of just life. You know, I mean, um, the reality of, of, of life is that perhaps there aren't really heroes, like good people do bad things and bad people do good things. And it's more complex than just somebody being bad or good. So despite all of these things that he was involved in and, despite so many of the things that he did. And there was even more, I guess, that I that I didn't include because of how he was covered in Argentina compared to the U.S. Like I said, it was kind of a tabloid situation. And getting access to a lot of those types of materials from Argentina is, like, not cheap. So a lot of them I just had to leave out because I couldn't get them. Uh, but I was aware of them, nonetheless. And, again, he doesn't come off like a hero. And it's like... You guys know this. 
are, you know, many of the Argentine fans, they know this, they know on, or at least they would have known at the time of his death, a lot of the things that he was accused of or, or whatever. And so to know that that many people showed up and came out, uh, despite those things is very, very interesting, very peculiar. And on top of that, there's also the element of, he had a feud with Carlos Monzon, which I only briefly mentioned in the book. So I'm not really giving anything away, but he trashed Carlos Monzon. Uh, Carlos Monzon was in a handful of movies and one of the movies he was in, I want to say he gets, he gets killed by his significant other character in the movie. And so Oscar Bonavena went to the Argentine press and was talking shit on that and was like, yeah, I'd never get killed in a movie like that guy or something like that. And uh, so they wound up having a brief little feud. And despite that, Carlos Monzon even shows up to mourn him and to, to pay his respects. So I think that a lot of it had to do with the mystery and the way that the information surrounding his death came out. It came out in chunks. It was like nobody knew exactly what happened right away. They wound up having to wait a long time to figure out or at least as much information as they could get. It was, it was strange. And so the situation lent itself to a lot of kind of conspiratorial thinking. And um, it, I think many people, especially in Argentina, got the impression that Oscar Bonavena was just this poor clown oaf dude who was lured to Reno, Nevada, this mystical place in the fucking desert where he was taken advantage of. And there was this guy who owned a brothel and his wife were terrible people. They set him up, had him killed. And now look. Now we don't even have a heavyweight contender. So it's like, you know, it was, it was very, uh, I think that that was kind of the way of thinking with a lot of Argentine people. And I find that pretty funny personally, but uh, I also don't want to sully that. Um, he was who he was. And it sounds like people are willing to accept whatever he was. And he's a hero now. I hope I hope a lot of people read this. It deserves to be read. I really enjoyed it. Um, thanks for coming on to talk about it. I appreciate it, man. I, I hope a lot of people enjoy it too, and uh, I hope a lot of people also check out the other things from Hamilcar Publications because uh, I hope this opens opens the door to them checking out a lot of these other books. I think there's a really cool thing going on. Definitely. No, I they they're sending out all of their stuff. I have the war on my bookshelf to get to but I, i'm trying to catch up on my reading for guests who are coming on so oh, well it's not a bad problem to have not a bad problem to have all right man thanks again all right talk to you soon thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.